Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, it might sound odd to think about business in digital transformation in 2021. After all, digital isn't optional. In fact, you're listening to this podcast, which means that digital is mandatory. It is digital. Yep. Now, you would think that companies already have an understanding of how they need to transform and have a strategy in place to do so. But... Here we are. And the truth is a lot of companies don't actually have a strong digital strategy in place. And so when consumers are expressing dissatisfaction with an experience online or using a certain tool, companies are often left just wondering how exactly they should improve things. And a staggering 84% of consumers say that their digital experiences don't live up to their expectations. That tells you something. Now, further complicating matters is that companies often don't even take the time to really even understand or find out what their customers want in the first place. I know that sounds crazy, but uh, the more you spend in the world of business, or if you already do, this may sound kind of familiar. And even if businesses do try to get to know what their customers are all about, what they're looking for, they're often hesitant to change in response. So with all of that, to help us explore how companies can digitally transform we welcome Howard Tierski to the Experience by Design Studios. Now, Howard has been named one of the top 10, it's top 10 digital transformation influencers and has helped some of the biggest brands and companies with their digital strategies. And these are companies that you would be very familiar with and know and love or don't love if their digital strategies aren't up to snuff. And if they've had Howard help them, you can rest assured they are. From a degree in cinematic arts and directing, to creating the first Ernst & Young, or EY, internet set or site, Howard has extensive experience in constructing experiences and directing experiences, framing experience, and know how to create an experience. We talked to Howard about his new book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, in which he lays out practical steps and proven approaches based on his wealth of experience to make your company succeed in the digital environment. If you're not even sure where to start on your digital journey to digital transformation, and you're not quite sure what it even means, Howard's new book will direct you on where you need to go and how you need to do it. And as a person who teaches research, one of the things I loved about the book was all the practical hands-on research advice that he provides, along with as well, video supplements being a digital transformation book that can actually help you in specific ways to make this digital transformation possible. So we welcome Howard to the EXD studios and hope you enjoy the chat. You, have, you might have the best background I've ever seen. Start with that. No one can see oh. that. But the, the woodwork is like, that's what I would imagine my office could look like if I could get an office look. <laughs> nice. Well, it's funny. I was doing another podcast and um, someone said that and um, they're like, you know, I want that to be my background. And they're like, would you mind getting out of the frame for a second so I could take a <laughs> screenshot? Yeah. So they literally had me Did move. They? 
and took a screenshot <laughs> and then they made it their background. <laughs> like well, that's weird. <laughs> well, it's funny because like, you know, a year ago I actually built a green screen because you talk about like digital experiences, right? You know, the room I'm in is a little bit messy. It's at my house and I couldn't afford a green screen. Didn't want to buy one. So I was, just went to Lowe's and got $40 with a PVC, bought some clamps, got a green sheet and I was in business. But then I had to, you know, find a backdrop. So I was looking at kitchens. And it was really interesting that if you choose the wrong kitchen for your backdrop, it can significantly impact the interactions and perceptions people have of you in that moment. <laughs> if it's too, of a, too much of a fancy kitchen, people think that you are, you know, hoity-toity, very upper class. If it's too, you know, downscale of a kitchen, they worry about you, how you're doing. Huh. So it's fine. Well, that it looks like you got some expensive appliances there. Yeah, someone does. They're not mine. This is not my kitchen. <laughs> this is a kitchen I found online, and then I started looking. And at the little gourds online. and stuff. It looks like it was arranged by a real estate agent. It probably was, and that's how I found. Like I, I spent too much time uh, at the start of the pandemic looking at kitchen designs, and kitchen images, to find the right kitchen for teaching my classes. But it does, you know, it does get into your book a little bit. I think in that. And I actually want to talk about your early work in, in, in directing. You know, it's this idea of staging the shot, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. staging the, the environment to create a certain kind of impression or perception so that people have a particular kind of experience that you are constructing in some respects for them. Which leads me well, to my kitchen. No question. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, listen, you know, stor storytelling is a key part of business. Right. And obviously of theater. And so we tell stories with language, but we also, of course, tell stories with, with imagery of various sorts. And things also, images not only give us context uh, about the character, which is really what you're talking about, right. but also help us know what to pay attention to and what to focus on. Framing of a shot, for example, you know, a wider shot versus a, a more close-up shot, things like that. So I think that uh, that's something we always need to be thinking about. You know, if we're putting a product shot on a website, you know, how do we want it framed? What kind of environment do we want it in? What's the story that that's telling? Or if we're, you know, using any kind of imagery, even abstract imagery still has a mood, a tone. Uh, what's, the, what's the message that it's sending? And, and how does it interact with what you might want to consider to be the hero, the main, the main message or the main you right. know, character or whatever you're, you're really trying to talk about, whether it's a product or whatever. And you're actually the second NYU film school graduate I've spoken to recently. The other being a gentleman named Anthony Rico who is an experienced designer in the Bay area and who was involved in like Burning Man and other kinds of immersive experience design. And we had a very kind of similar discussion about, you know, the trajectory of, you know, the visualization of the shot, the conceptualization of, of, of a film or of a story, how it's supposed to all come together and drawing that line to experience design. It's, it's an interesting field in terms of experience design because it is drawing people from so many different areas with so many different backgrounds into this common space where they're bringing these gifts and perspectives and then trying to work together to create these things we're calling experiences. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what, one way I like to think about it sometimes is the three components that really make up experience. And, and one is, one is per, per se, the touch point, right? The thing that you're actually interacting with. The thing you need to realize that when you're creating anything, whether it's a store or a theatrical production, is that the thing that you're creating is not the experience. It's not. Right. It is the thing that, you know, that, because then you've got two, two, two other layers, right? You've got, so you've got the, the thing you've created. Right. You've then got focus because nobody can take in 
if you walk into a store, no one is taking in every aspect of that store at any given moment in time. First of all, you can't even look at everything because you only see a certain you see a certain right. field of view. But also, your mind is also constantly filtering things out. That's the nature of perception. So that's the first thing is to say there's the thing itself. There's the reality that you've constructed, whether it's an object or a store or an environment or a play or a movie or anything. There's the thing you've constructed. There's the, there's the focus. What are they actually looking at and paying attention to? And then there's the meaning that they derive from what they've seen, which, again, is going to be filtered through their past perceptions, things like that, some of which you have the opportunity to create through setting expectations, for example. You know, if you have a, a movie and you tell people it's a, it's a comedy, then obviously they come into it experiencing the movie differently than if you tell them that it's a thriller. It could be the same movie, but they're going to experience it differently. And, uh, and of course, they also have their own experience. If they're you know, brought up extremely religious or if they grew up in the country or in some other part of the right. world or if they have certain beliefs or all these things also filter the meaning that they derive from something. And so, you know, if you add those three things together, you can try to control and influence those things. Focus, for example, you can't always control what people look at, but you can influence it a lot. You can influence it through lighting. You can influence right. through color. You can influence through what's moving and not moving. And this is a lot of design. It's about figuring out what do I create, but then how do I make sure they're looking at the right thing at the right time? I, appre- I really appreciate you bringing up expectations because you know, it's a thing that I harp on a lot but I don't hear others really talk about as much. I mean, there's this idea that, you know, fulfilling people's expectations as often reaching for what they expect, but you know, you can also participate in decreasing their expectations or as I like to think about it under promise and over deliver, right? I mean, you can lower people's expectations, shape their expectations. And this is what makes a lot of this work. So interesting to me as a social scientist, because it's not just about, you know, engineering a space. It's about how people interact with that space, both at that moment, but also with everything they're bringing with them to that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is one of the reasons why understanding the customer, doing things like customer research is so essential because the ultimate outcome you're looking for can usually be measured in three things, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Almost any experience that you engineer, it's for the purpose of creating certain thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And so when you know that, that the, the, the experience is actually that combination of reality, focus, and meaning, then what you really want to try to understand is, okay, if these are the people who I'm trying to influence their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, how do different types of types of experiences, that combination of, 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 of reality, focus, and, and, um, and meaning influence their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And, right. and how do you find that out? Well, the good news is just partly it's by starting to do research to understand people so you can create a hypothesis of, well, people that have these priorities, things that people that have these fears, people that have these areas of interest, these areas of passion, these kinds of unmet needs, it seems like this type of experience would it, would it trigger these particular thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And then you can prototype it and test it and see, okay, was that right or wrong? Because, you know, sometimes right. you're off. And, and that, that process in a, you know, sort of a design thinking type mindset, which right. says, well, first we want to make sure we have empathy and then we're going to come up with some ideas and then we're going to prototype and test. This, I think, is the core of being able to really get it right so that you wind up creating a reality that after it's filtered to become experience, drives the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that you really want as a business outcome or an artistic outcome, or any other kind of outcome that you're seeking. Any kind of experience you're trying to design and create. One of the things I really appreciate in reading the book, uh, Winning Digital Customers, 
was that number one. It, oh, that it, thing. Yeah, that thing, right? No, I, <laughs> and I was, so I, I really appreciate the emphasis on research for this reason, because um, you know, I'm a professor and I'm constantly harping on my students about research. And they'll say things like, oh, I don't like doing research papers. I don't like doing research. I often hear professors say students don't like doing research. And I'm like, it's not that they don't like doing research. It's just they don't like doing the research you want them to do. They do research all the time. They research their fantasy football teams. They research where they're going to go to dinner. They research what car they're going to buy. They research what stocks are going to go, what majors, what jobs. But they may not want to research Great your point. thing. Right. And so you're, you know, the book really does emphasize the importance of some basic core research skills that you need to have if you want to engage in this world. Otherwise, you're going to be guessing, right? You're going to be shooting in the dark, often from what you think is relevant, but that but what you think is relevant and important might not be what your customers really care about. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you when you describe research, you know, in a, in an academic context, it makes me remember going to the card catalog. Right. Oh yeah, those peri- are readers guide to periodic literature, right? Know, spending an enormous amount of time with experiences that are not very pleasant, looking things up, writing them down, wandering through that, you know, stacks yep. of books, trying to find the right book only to discover it's not there, you know? Um, so, you know, historically research before our modern era, you know, is not a very efficient process. And of course, therefore not super fun, but on the flip side, you know, what do they do on CSI? We, we literally sit right. down and watch shows about people doing research. Yeah. We may, they may not call it research. They call it looking for clues, trying to solve right. the crime, but this is, and that's how I think of the work that I do. You know, like, I don't think of it, I, I don't even make that association anymore to like the research papers I had to write in, in college or whatnot. To be honest, since I have a degree in theater, I didn't have to write too many research papers, <laughs> but there were a few. Right, right. <laughs> there were a few. Um, I think I had to write one on Chekhov's A Doll's House, no, Ibsen's A Doll's House. And uh, I don't know. Some, anyway. So some Russian. <laughs> there, was, there was some paper yeah, on right. some Russian at some point. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, see, now Ibsen is actually Norwegian, but I, I get oh, your point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's been a while. Uh, anyway, I guess all I'm trying to say is, but, but I, you know, that word research to me, because I do it every day, I don't think about that's a very old reference to me, but I can understand how for some people, that's the main thing they think of. To me, it's this exciting pursuit of the answer to yeah. a, to a mysterious question and a question of high value. And I mean, the question can be something different, but like, how do we create a banking application that people will love and will cause them to ditch their current bank and flock to ours? What right. would be the thing that would drive that kind of behavior? I don't know. How can we find out? Well, how can we, you know, where can we look? And of course, you know, in the book, what I cover extensively, dozens and dozens of ways to do research, whether it's talking to people in your call center or observing customers or different ways of analyzing data from your current websites or touch points or other things. So there's, there's such a treasure trove of different techniques that we can use to research that it becomes this wonderful mountain of information that you then, of course, have to try to synthesize because sometimes it's contradictory and sometimes it has holes. But again, just like a, a great drama, police drama or whatever, where you're really you're trying to figure out what's the answer. Because once you figure it out, that answer can be worth a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of satisfaction if it allows you to create something that improves people's lives. It may, you make me think about something, um, and I've kind of thought around it, but never thought about it directly in this kind of way, which is there's a lot of vulnerability in the phrase, I don't know. And we're, I mean, we often train students to not say, I don't know, but to show how they do know. And the, the, the act of saying, I don't know, it can almost be like an act of failure. If I call on a student in class and I say, what's the answer to this? And they say, I don't know. Well, they didn't perform to my expectations. But I think one of the things I like to think about as growing older is we find 
the value of I don't know. And that rather than people jumping to knowing, finding opportunity in the I don't know moment and then having the skills to go find out. Well, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I think one of the biggest barriers to companies being successful at improving the experience is because of what they think they know. Right. These kind of apocryphal ideas that people will say to a company, oh, well, you know, our, our, uh, you know, our, our, our corporate banking customers only care about this, or the people who use the app are only in this age demographic or, or whatever it may be. And, um, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're right, but sometimes they're just flat out wrong or outdated, or, you know, they missed an important nuance that's all the difference in the world. And so that's why we always want to be, you know, investigating and learning what is it that companies believe about their com customers. But I also like to just view those things as a hypothesis. You know, it might be stated as a certainty, but I assume that whatever yeah. people think about their customers is nothing more than a hypothesis and it's our job to prove or disprove it. And, uh, and by the way, what's happened with COVID, and, and I'd be in, actually very interested to ask you with your sociology background, to me, what an interesting time for us to be a sociologist because yes. our society has been so holistically impacted. I can think of nothing since maybe something like World War II that has so holistically impacted our, our society, and not just in the US, but around the world. And I think that what that means from a customer research perspective is that whatever you thought you knew about your customer before the pandemic is is potentially obsolete because your customers' priorities have changed, their desires have changed, their problems have changed. At least they've changed to enough of a degree that there's a risk that you're dealing with expired information and now it needs to be refreshed. But uh, but let me ask you, like, what yeah. what do you see from a sociological perspective as you look at the world and, and how it's emerging from COVID? I think, you know, I always tell my students, you know, we're going to play a drinking game in class. Every time I say, it depends, drink. And by the end of class, you know, <laughs> Hopefully they're drinking water and they'll be well hydrated. Yeah, I was recent, recently we spoke with uh, Michael Solomon, who has a new book called The New Chameleons. Michael, you know, has written a lot in the area of marketing, and his book is premised on this idea that customer and market segmentation is becoming difficult, if not impossible, because of the hybrid identities and lives that people live. Right? It's hard to necessarily nail someone down to be a particular segment because that can shift as people's context shifts and. Being in a digital world, that digital that context can shift really quickly based on what app they're opening or who they're talking to at any particular time. So you I can't think, use time of day to assume. Oh, nine to five, they're in their business context. Right, right, absolutely, right, ex exactly. And so I think you know it reminds me of nine eleven, and I'm I'm from Detroit originally, and my ancestry is Arab American, and people would talk about nine eleven as a moment we all went through together as Americans, and I would go, um, actually, we didn't go off. We all went through it together, but not in the same way. You know, like this moment with COVID, Asian Americans are going through it very differently than mm. those who are not Asian American. Uh, you know, or you know, different parts of the country, how their vac vaccination rates are very different, or different counties. And so you can see that we're going through it together, but differently. And so that's Absolutely. where going into those other those deeper levels of research to understand the nuance, the difference, and the distinctions, and what those things practically mean. So it's not just people are experiencing it differently as a belief system, but as an actual touch points, to use your term, or lived experience in an ongoing way. Yeah. And the segmentation of business is similarly diverse. I mean, if you were a movie theater, right. you, were, you, you experienced a horrible pandemic. If you were in the business of manufacturing toilet paper, you know, it couldn't have been better, right? 
Not that you would have wished for it, but you know, we see some businesses were dramatically harmed and some businesses, you know, and, and it's not a negative on them, but they're the opportunity for them to, to serve was magnified, whether you're Zoom or Amazon or Instacart, and all of a sudden their business is shot through the roof. So uh, as you say, not everyone has had the same experience by a long shot. Yeah, but you know, so when we talk about experience, you know, we talk about World War II, and even as recent, you might you might be interested in this. So there was a documentary series on Netflix called, I think it was called Five Came Back. And it was about mm-hmm. five, I don't know if you ever saw, but it was about five directors. Mm-hmm. It was about Frank Capra. Um, it was about, I'm trying to, John Ford. Um, and I'm trying to remember the others. Um, but the point being that they were all going into this war moment, trying to use cinema to create an experience of, to get people behind World War II, because Americans weren't necessarily interested in going to fight a war in, in, in Europe. And so Frank Capra actually did a film at the time called um, The Negro Soldier, because people who are African-American, Black American, were not interested because they were living in the Jim Crow era. They were not interested in necessarily going to go fight for a country that they felt didn't appreciate. And so it talks about how these films were used to shape experiences and perception of the population to achieve support to market, right? To brand the war, to get people support as a cause that that was worth, you know, committing to or being involved in. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, you would. You and, would and today we see we see so many uh, uh, people being drafted into this whole vaccination campaign, right? We see many entertainers being considering, you know, how can I help? How can I persuade? Just like what you're saying about African Americans in the war, we see many black leaders and black entertainers trying to step up to help with vaccination hesitancy in in different communities, but obviously one of the major areas, and, and it's understandable because of history, but nevertheless problematic the hesitancy in the African-American community. I saw some stats on that just the other day that just shocked me and it showed the, the vaccination rates, the percentage of people. And like, right. and, and, and I, like in, my, in New Jersey, for example, where I live, um, it was something like 51% of people had been vaccinated, but it was like 67% of whites and like 6% of African-Americans. Right. I mean, just shockingly right. uh, diverse. And I don't think that, I don't think that's mainly availability, maybe to some degree, but I think, I don't really, but I think it's a lot that mindset and, and cultural hesitancy. Well, you you talk about you you mentioned Maybe a bit this. Of both. Well, yeah, I, I think so. But you mentioned also this idea of our previous experiences, which which a company may have no control over or probably doesn't have control over, impacting and shaping our expectations and our willingness to engage. And and for many in the African American community, the Black community, they go straight to um, Tuskegee, right? They go straight to right. the syphilis studies. And they go straight to other examples of feeling maltreated by healthcare, experimented upon by healthcare. And as a result, they don't trust it. Like, why would I trust this given this history? Right. And so there is so a they have to, to be too. given. So they have to be given uh, some different uh, experiences, which means, you know, something different to focus on and an effort to change the meaning that they associate with that because people are uh, pliable in terms of the meanings that they associate with things. And we've seen that in society. I mean, you know, just look at what's happened with, with gay marriage and that the, the mindset about, about the LB, you know, LBTQ community or whatever the correct number of right. letters right. is. Right, 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 right. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, that's changed so much during my lifetime. So, so people's, you know, uh, uh, the meaning that people give to things can be shifted over time. It just takes some, um, and, and it comes through experience. 
that's the opportunity we have. And that's one of the things that I always loved about theater and film, the opportunity to really not just um, give people an experience that's entertaining, but really something that gets them to think and possibly changes the way that they process meaning. I, I love the example you brought up about gay marriage because I, I've taught a class on media, culture, and society. And one of the things I talk about, which my students have no idea, but you would remember probably, is Billy Crystal on the TV show Soap. Because he was the, I think, the first gay character on right. you know, primetime television. Right. If you and, don't count John Ritter playing uh, right. the, the, the fake gay character. Fake that was how character. Hollywood started, right? The first step was, we won't show a gay character, but we're willing to show someone right. pretending, pretending to be gay and making a joke out of it, you know? Right. Which, uh, but it, it was a step forward, even if it doesn't seem like it, because at least you were willing to talk about it in a, in a kind of a one-step removed, disassociated way. But then you're right, of course, uh, Billy Crystal's character on Soap, absolutely. And, you know, Martin Mull was on Roseanne. I mean, it's not my area of research. And the, you know, there are people who have written better books than I'm talking about right now. But the point being, you know, how about digital transformation? I know you've taught classes on, you know, new media, internet, television, this idea of the media shaping the perception of a group of people so that this idea of a them becomes less foreign, right? And becomes more comfortable. Will and Grace, or, you know, going forward into modern family where, you know, them being gay is not central to the, it's part of their character, but not central to the storyline of their character. It's more. Right. Right. And then you have shows like transgender or transparent. I mean, transparent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, this idea as you're going talking about how we can think about moving and change, because I know a big part of your book is change, right? (laughs) You know, this idea of customer experience is not just about, you know, we're going to do a journey map. Well, why are we doing a journey map? I don't know, but we got a journey map. Well, that's good. Well, you know, are you, is your organization committed to change and being one of those central questions that I think a lot of organizations, they might like the idea of change, but not necessarily are committed to the, you know, actually change. Well, I don't think any organizations like the idea of change actually. Um, and, and okay. I would argue that you shouldn't, I don't think anybody should be committed to change. Frankly, I think that, um, change is a necessary evil. I mean, the reality is in business, if, if you are running a business that's successfully, it's profitable and it's growing and everything's going great, then Lord knows, don't change. Right. <laughs> you know, unless you have some reason to think that there's something on the horizon that's going to threaten the success of the company, if everything's going great, don't change. Because change is costly, risky, uncertain. Right? Well, why do that? That doesn't make any sense. The thing is, in the world that we live in right now, it's almost never the case that you can just keep doing the same thing and expect to be successful in the future because we live in a time of rapid change. And that has been happening for at least the last couple of decades. And so given that, uh, you know, yes, uh, on one level, you know, you do need to commit to change, but, but it's, 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 for a, it's for a reason. It's not because change is somehow a, a virtue into itself. It's because what you really need to commit to, I think, is success. Right. And if you look at that with open eyes, then you almost always, and we do this, this is what I do all day long every day is work with companies and say, okay, where are we now? Right. What, you know, when we talk about journey maps, one of the things that I always talk about is the first journey map you create shouldn't be what should the customer experience be? The first journey map you create is what is it now? What is it really now? Not what we think it is, not our theoretical idea of how the customer interacts with us, but get out there and really understand What's really happening when a customer opens a checking account at your bank? Really? 
How long do they wait in line? How many forms do they have to fill out? How many mistakes get made? How long does it really take for the thing to come back in the mail? How often are they confused by the stuff that you send them? You know, all that kind of stuff. Really, truly, what is their experience? And very often when you map all that out, you discover that you're creating a lot of pain, friction, aggravation, frustration, sometimes anger, hostility, resentment. I mean, all kinds of negative emotion and meanings that the customer creates like, you know, they don't care. They're out of date. And these are obviously negative for the brand. Now, of course, it's not always all bad. Sometimes there's things that you're doing that are awesome. And of course, you want to make sure you understand those as well. Because when you're creating that future vision, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, of course. But you also need to be clear-eyed on if we want to be successful in this era that we're in, we've got to be delivering a fantastic experience to the customer. First of all, where are we now in terms of that? And then where are the problems and what do we need to really address in order to be able to keep kind of moving that, you know, moving, moving forward and improving that. You know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've seen enough to know that whenever someone says to me, well, all they have to do is to be very afraid. It reminds me of the story in, in, in your book about the passports, right? So you're, you're going on a trip, you have passports, you're trying to scan into the phone and it's this long process. I can imagine someone somewhere saying, well, all they got to do is just enter the information into their phone. And this turns out you notice to be nobody ever says thing. all I have to do, right? right. <laughs> when it's you that has to do it, you're like, oh, well, it's a whole hassle. But when right. it's someone else, it's like, oh, it seems simple. Here's yeah. all they, I love it. You know, here's all they have to do. Unfortunately, right now, I have a daughter who's in the hospital. Um, she had an infection oh. post-surgery and, I, you know, that they are, you know, she has a, a intravenous IV that we have to administer at home. And the nurses are saying to us, well, all you got to do is, I'm like, well, I, okay, I study. <laughs> I studied the difference between process and practice. I know there's, and technology, there's often more to the story than how all you have to do is, which is why I really appreciated there was a story in the book about, you know, have the CEOs or the SVPs actually listened to the calls at the call center? Have they actually seen the work being done? Do they actually know what goes on, right? And if not, that's a really important step to get them to understand that, you know, what it looks like on, you know, a flow chart is not actually necessarily how it works in real life. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier being willing to say, I don't know. I think a key part of success in certainly customer research, but I think business in general is, is that humility to say, if someone comes to you as an executive and says, I need you to make this decision. Sometimes you need to be able to say, you know what? I'm not the right person to make this decision. You need to ask the people who work in the call center. They're going to know the answer better than me. You need to ask the security guard who works at the front desk and talk. You need to ask the cashier at the store or the barista or whoever it is that actually interacts with the customer all day long, because that's not my job. You know, it's not a criticism of a CEO that they don't spend all day, every day with customers, right? They got a lot of other things to do, but it does mean that they don't have the advantage that those people who do spend all day with customers have in terms of becoming an expert. As a, as, a, as a person who studies workplaces, and I teach a course called Ethnography for Experience Design, yeah, one of the things I, I try to emphasize with my students is all work is knowledge work. It's up to you to find what their knowledge is. So whether it be the, you know, reminds me of this scene from, um, you know, the breakfast club where they're making fun of the janitor and the janitor's like, I know everything that goes on here, right? I know, I read all your notes. I, you know, I know what you say. I know who's, what's going on. And it's like, just because you think don't think their job is important doesn't mean they don't have a lot of knowledge about what's happening. Mm, that's, that's an interesting analogy. I remember that guy. Yeah, well, right. I'd love to hear what, what are some of the key highlights that you cover in your ethnography course? That sounds very interesting. I'd love to well, take that course. 
You're more than welcome. Um, happy to have you. I'm happy to have you talking it as well. I mean, the, you know, one of the things I talk about with students about ethnography is that ethnography is not a method, it's a perspective. Okay. And what we're trying to understand is what makes a group a group or a culture a culture. You know, what makes them identifiably who they are. And we can use any number of methods towards doing that thing. So we can do surveys, we can do um, interviews, focus group, use big data and observations as well, and maybe even participate in order to understand what that means, you know, both as, you know, subjectively in their minds and in their hearts, and also objectively in terms of the things that they do, that they rely on to make shared meaning. And so that tends to be like, you know, this idea, you know, an experience design, it goes into, you know, are you designing for some abstract category of worker or are you designing for these people? And what are their needs, wants, desires, hopes, et cetera, that you can help them achieve? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy no. to, to figure that out, right? Those are, those are some big questions to figure out and even to be able to then share, you know, uh, how, what have you seen as the best practices for, you know, one of the challenges that I, I see with ethnography is you get people who go out there and do it. You know, they, they do the equivalent of, you know, living in the jungle with the monkeys for, right. for two months or something. Right. And then they get it, right? But they're not just the one who has to get it, right? The whole right. product team has to get it. What have you seen as the best practices and what do you teach about how someone can kind of come back to the larger group and say, okay, right. I went out there and spent all this time. How can I help you understand it so you can operationalize that knowledge? Well, one of the things I tell them that they should do is study documentary filmmaking, quite frankly. Because, you know, it's going back to your original point. It's the storytelling. It's not, you know, there's, it, there's nothing worse or, or sadder than when people find this fantastic phenomena that just is enthralling and interesting, and they render it lifeless on the page by writing about it in an academic prose. Mm. You know, so it's, you know, your job is not just to do the research, but it's to give voice to that work and the people that you studied. And that's ethnography. It's a written description of a group. That's what the word, you know, is referencing. And so study the people who do it well. Singers, right? I want to listen to some uh, Bruce Springsteen. You being in New Jersey, right? Listen, you know, look at filmmakers. Look at how they cut scenes together. You know, look at how editing processes work so that then you know how to take the video and audio materials you have to create this visual experience. So it's those uh, kinds of approaches I think are really, really valuable, which is why I wish I studied filmmaking, I wish I studied documentary filmmaking, which is why I was, I was looking at your past work. I was like, wow, that's amazing because here's a person who knows how to deliver that kind of thing, that kind of story. Storytelling is one of the most important skills in business. And of course, there's a lot of people talking about it now in books and other things. So it's not an original idea, but I still think that uh, a lot of people in business aren't really using stories. Not really. Right. Um, sometimes they think they are, but then it's, you know, it's still bullet points, you know, um, and really figuring out how to make stories really work for you is key to being a really effective communicator. And well, effective communication is a key part to creating those experiences that change people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Yeah. So like doing things like video ethnography, right. Or one technique that um, I, I am very interested in doing more of is called a, a video reflexive ethnography, where this is really fascinating, might be something to add to a future edition of your book, which is where you videotape people working, then you have them watch the videotape and tell you what's going on, and you videotape them watching themselves. And that becomes the data. Yeah. Is, 
is them looking at and pulling out what, you know, what are the important things? Because in the examples I've seen of this work being done, especially in healthcare, the things that the researchers think are important and, and, you know, and vital are not necessarily the things that the workers themselves identify as the crucial things. I've never done that. And, and as I hear you describe it, that sounds genius to me because of course, the other approach, which is very common, is the kind of talk out loud form of right. ethnography where you watch someone do a task, but you ask them to speak out loud and verbalize a stream of consciousness. But this has several fundamental problems. Uh, the first is, are you influencing or changing the way they embark on the task? Right. You're, re, you're helping, you're making it very difficult for them to pretend you're not there. Right. <laughs> Secondly, the, the subject can, and I talk about this in my book, can get drawn into a conversation and get drawn into an explanatory demonstrative mode, which is actually not what you want. You want stream of consciousness, but very often it's, it's just a, it's just one of those, you know, like things people just fall into. Once they're talking, they start to say, they start to talk to you instead of just uh, giving their stream of consciousness. And then some people are just plain old uncomfortable. They start it, but then they don't keep doing it because they just feel right. weird and all that. And you don't have enough time to train them to feel comfortable because you're just doing like an hour long or two or even a day long session. So a lot of downsides to it, even though it's valuable. But what you're describing seems like the best of both worlds because you can let the person engage in the behavior in their completely natural form right. and then do it rapidly enough. I would do it right away. Like you're saying, like right. immediately rewind the tape. Joking, of course, but you right. know, what I mean? right. <laughs> metaphorically, right. <laughs> and, I used, and, and I used have them my it. dissertation, so I know. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And and by the way, we do something very similar um, when we do call center observations, which is also often very valuable. Which is that we'll we'll get paired with somebody and they'll do a call, and of course, we can't ask them questions during the call. We can't ask them to verbal. I mean, they're doing the call. You know, the, right. the person on the other end would notice, so we we can't. But then as soon as the call is over, we're like, great, let's talk about what just happened. Why did you use this tool? And why did you tell them that? And what were you thinking when you did that? So, uh, but, it, but even then it's usually not with video. It's usually just with, you know, well, I took these notes of these questions I want to ask. Right. So I love it. I mean, I'm going to try that. I think that's a great suggestion. Well, I did. I actually did do with the call center with an engagement I had where, cause I do something called conversation analysis, which is where we look at the details of talk and the structures of interaction very closely. And the, when I, when, when I was doing it for this client, trying to redesign their call center training program, I then had the, 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 the primary workers and the managers in the room at the same time, listening back and telling me what was going on. And then I would point out some things that I saw going on and the managers were like, we had no idea any of this was going on. <laughs> you know? right, and it was really, it was right. really fascinating because it ended up being a knowledge sharing session because people from other departments were like, we had no idea. That's why you were doing that. We always thought it was always so annoying, but now that you describe why you're doing it that way, it makes all the sense in the world. It's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, that's a quote I love. I, I don't know who, it was not mine. I don't know who to attribute to, but it's the, you know, they say in theory and practice, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there's a huge difference. You know? <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely going to take that. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it reminds me of a story. I, I was doing perhaps similar work once for a large insurance company and we were watching people do auto, auto quotes, you know, people calling up, I have this car, here's my, here's right. my age, you know, they want to price in their auto insurance. So we're watching uh, people in call centers and actually live too in insurance agency offices. And they would go into the system and it was a green screen system, right? Which uh, I don't think there are many left, but even as recently as a few years ago, there were still all these old green screen systems <laughs> and they would fly through these screens, you know? So the first couple screens, they would, we were watching and we couldn't even see what was on the screen. Like they would do the first couple screens so fast before they even asked the person any questions. And so after I watched this for an hour or so, I said to the person, what are those first few screens you're right. doing? And they said, oh, those are the yes, yes, no screen. And I'm it. like, yes, yes, no. They're like, yeah, it's three questions. We always answer the first question, yes. The second question, yes. The third question, no. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, 
that seems sort of pointless. What are the questions? And they're like, oh, I think one is like whether you've seen any of our television commercials. One yeah. of them is whether you heard us on the radio. And one is, you know, whether you spoke to another agent before uh, before me or something like that. Right, I'm right. like, okay, do the people who are using this information nope. know <laughs> that you're automatically answering? And by the way, this is wasting their time, right? So like, you know, but yeah. it's a classic example, like you say, of a disconnect between the people in the field doing the work mm. and somebody in an ivory tower going, we must have these questions. We're gathering critical data from the field. And then they look at the data and say, see how, see how successful we are? This is why I tell, right, my st- right, exactly. I, exactly. I tell my students that, you know, statistics are merely representations of the practices that led to their creation. They go, mm. what do you mean? I'm like, crime stats. Crime stats don't measure crime. They measure how police report crime. Unemployment stats don't represent unemployment. They measure how unemployment is measured. So if you want to know what the data means, you have to look at the practices and the context that led to their creation. Absolutely. I did a whole video once, not often viewed, I'll confess, <laughs> on the way that people measure website conversion. Okay. And the fact that, you know, at a high level, what is conversion? It's the ratio of the number of people who bought to the number of people who visited the site. Seems simple, right? Like what what's the big deal? Why isn't all website conversion measured the same way? Well, there's about 25 different things that can influence, you know, like, like, what do you consider a purchase? And what if they return it? Do you still count it? And what do you consider a visit? You know, if right. they come back 10 minutes later, is that a second visit or is that part of the first visit? And on and on and on, all these different things. And when you're done looking at all those things, you realize that one site could have a 10% conversion and be doing a lot better than another site with a 20% conversion, depending on all these little rules about how they actually measure it. I want to see that video because I, I the, cl- the class I developed is called Data, Context, and Information. And I want to use that video because it makes the point perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. Remind uh, me. I'll send you a link. I think, it's, I think it's, it's a great plug for my book, actually, because that is one of the bonus videos, but I'd be happy to send it to you, that come right. uh, with, for free with the book. Well, I want <laughs> to ask really you. really want to geek out on stuff like analyzing data. I, I wanted to ask you about that because, well, first, I was looking at your Twitter and it was making me very tired. Because I'm like, how is he finding the time to create all of this content? And then with the book, I, I appreciated was there's you know QR codes and there's online content that goes along with the you know the book content, you know. And I do some content creation. I do a podcast. I live stream on Twitch, um, and it's exhausting. So how do you manage time to to be what you know is now termed as a content creator as well as a CEO? Well, by having a team. It's as simple okay. as that. I mean, I don't do all the work. Um, I My goal is always, I mean, as, as someone who runs a company, and my, the first question I ask anytime I have the opportunity to do something is, can anybody other than me do this? <laughs> <laughs> and if it's possible, my first goal is to say, you do it, right? Delegation. And so, um, so, you know, uh, the ideas are, are, all come from me. And I'll do, for example, I do a live cast twice a week, right? So yeah. I do twice a week. I have a 30-minute live cast. And it's my job to figure out What's a topic? And I talk for 30 minutes. So I prepare for that and I take that seriously. So that's an hour of content, a new original content every single week right. that I'm creating. But then I have somebody who turns each live cast into an article. It's basically almost like a journalist. You know, they right. listen to what I said and they synthesize it down. I have somebody else who turns it into an infographic, um, you know, and so on and so on. Right. And then, you know, posting it. I'm not actually literally sitting there and literally post, you know, someone's writing the little blurb that goes before the post when we repost the video. So, you know, I think that's the key. And, and, you know, I have the benefit that because I run a company, this all this content that I create is essentially a marketing activity. And so because it brings business in, it justifies spending money on the people that it takes to, um, to get it done. And, uh, 
And we use some amazing people in the Philippines, and that means that we can do it at somewhat lower cost than sure. if every. We have people in the U.S. doing it too, but yeah. they're aided by teams in the Philippines, and that does make it more cost effective. So I need people. That's what you're saying. I, you know, I got to find people. Well, time. You know, this stuff takes time. Yeah, Either you have to do it, or someone else has to do it. Well, I, I love the fact that you're saying that because, and this is going back to digital. Um, looking at this current, you know, cultural moment of content creation. There's a lot of content out there because people, all kinds of people are creating content. It doesn't mean all of them should be, right? There is this delta between, you know, self-expression for artistic purposes because I have something to say and I'm going to say it versus people who are trying to say something, but maybe not particularly well. Um, you look at the Twitch, your numbers of Twitch. I think they just broke a record for like monthly um, views, right? There are people out there. There's a crowded market space. And especially for a person mm. like you who, I saw that you were like at your Ernst and Young with their first website, their first internet site. And I was I was hoping that would be like your image behind you was what what that looked like the first internet site for Ernst and Young. You'd have to look in the uh, the Wayback Machine. <laughs> the Wayback Machine. You know, it's like you know this 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 the noise in the space of companies trying to break through, given mm. all that's happening online on TikTok, on Twitch, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Periscope, and whatever else is coming down how to break through and, and both fit expectations that people have, but also be differentiated to be distinctive at the same time. Yeah. Well, I think um, I, I have heard a statistic and I don't know if this is true. You know, it's like they say 42.3% of all statistics are made up on the spot. Right. You know, and of course I just made that up on the spot, right. but uh, <laughs> um, I've heard that there are more podcasts than there are people who listen to podcasts. I believe that. I, I don't know if that's really true or not, but certainly it's true that there are tons and tons of podcasts. And, um, and similarly, you know, obviously, as you say, there's a tremendous amount of people creating content online. I would be hesitant to ever discourage anybody from, from doing it, though, because one thing that I hear all the time from people who have gotten very successful at it, whether that's someone like a Gary Vaynerchuk or a Russell right. Brunson or whoever, is that they say, oh, or, or, or a Brendan Burchard, they say, oh, man, when I started, I sucked at this. Right. And I worked at it for a year or two years or however long, and no one was listening to me. And frankly, I don't blame them because the stuff I was putting out back then wasn't very good either. Right. And, but I did it and I did it and I did it and I got better at it. Eventually, I built an audience. And so for all the people who maybe they're not, they're with the content they're putting out isn't the quality that deserves an audience, maybe. Uh, well, maybe that's just their journey toward uh, content that does. And what's great about our digital world is they're not taking up space that someone else would otherwise use. They're not taking up the six to seven o'clock slot on CBS, you know? Right. There's an infinite amount of shelf space. So there's no harm, no foul for anyone who wants to create a podcast or a live cast or put a blog on Medium or whatever you want to do. And, but, you know, of course it is very hard and, and there's a lot of high quality content out there. So it, I think, and I'm still figuring it out, right? There's by no right. means if I got it all figured out, but I think part of it's having good content, knowing who you're speaking to. Part of it is understanding, you know, the algorithms and how you sort of get your content at the top of the pile so people will see it. And um, probably other stuff that I don't even know about, which is why I'm still, I'm still figuring it out myself. And why you have people. Yeah. I, I don't know if any of your cust any of your clients are, are educational institutions, but this has been something very interesting during this past year. And I've, I've been teaching hybrid courses, part in class, part online for like 12, 13, 14, 15 years. So this is like... You know, teaching online, not a new concept, although it was new for a lot more faculty. But mm -hmm. I, I start to think about, you know, as professors creating learning experiences, we're competing with these other avenues that have nothing to do with 
our business per se, but nevertheless form an impression and an expectation of our customers. So if you have, you know, like my 11 year old daughters on YouTube watching videos, you know, there's an expectation about what watching videos or looking at videos is that is then going to cross that barrier into education, which is looking at for, you know, for teachers online. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's an interesting moment for education and higher ed to figure out what their digital experiences are and how that can then, you know, connect with what students are looking for of that age range who have, you know, are used to personalization, yeah. customization, convenience, things like that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of interesting facets to that. And we do work with some educational institutions and we're doing a lot of work right now with Barnes and Noble Education that runs the bookstores at a lot of educational okay. institutions and thinking about the transition from physical learning materials to more and more digital learning materials. I, one of the things that I think is very interesting about education, though, is if we look at many areas, uh, if we think about the acceleration of dig digital centricity of many right. things that happened during COVID, whether that's shopping or uh, you know work from home uh, or or telemedicine, um, most of the areas resulted in people saying, you know what, I like this. I like working from home. I like being able to talk to my doctor on Zoom and not always having to drive there. You know, I I like ordering my groceries right. and having them delivered. Education, I I don't know if it's the only one, but it stands out as the only major area of life that really got worse. And I think that most educators I talk to and students that I talk to, and I have five kids, my oldest is in college and two in high school and one in middle school and one in grammar school. And they would all unanimously say that uh, they do not like this online right. distance learning. And my wife's a psychologist. And interestingly, a lot of her patients are actually teachers, you know, K through 12 teachers. And consistently, they all say they can't wait to get back in the classroom. So this is education is the one area that I'm aware of where moving, you know, the forced movement to distance as a result of COVID just has completely failed. And to be honest, I'm not sure I understand why a business meeting works so well on Zoom. And there are flaws and challenges sure. to it. There's pros and cons, but overall it works pretty well. Whereas a classroom experience, which you'd think is kind of similar, right? People talking, asking questions, showing slides. I mean, if you looked at it from 10,000 feet, it doesn't look all that different than a business meeting. But in fact, wildly different in terms of effectiveness right. during COVID. So I don't know, maybe you have a theory about that, why education has performed so poorly. Or yeah, maybe you disagree with that premise. I don't know. No, no. I, I think, you know, it depends, you know, drink. But, you know, so when students say it got worse, one of my questions, especially, you know, for my world, which is higher education, where I've only taught, how great was it to begin with? Right. Going back to your original point, what is the as now versus you know, before COVID? Mm -hmm. And so we might find that students didn't necessarily like it that much the way it was, this kind of didactic lecture PowerPoint format, okay? Um, and yeah, it got worse, but it doesn't mean it was great before. Now, professors, right, might feel like it was fine before, but again, they're not the customer. And, and people really, you know, their faces go white when I call students customers. And I don't do it, and I do tell my students, you're not customers, you're students. But this idea that, we are delivering a product to them that we hope that they, you know, want. And like, as you talk about in your book, love. Okay. This is why I went, I started looking at areas like Twitch. I'm like, well, if people can make watching another person play a video game interesting, what are they doing that's working so well? How do they build engagement and community 
what well, to me sounded like the most boring thing in the world is watching someone else play a video game online. And you start and why do you, to, what do you think? Well, I think that because they're able, there are very specific devices that are used, um, both of how check, you know, the functionality of the environment, right? The space itself, the UI, the user interface, the depth part of the digital experience, but also the community part that can get developed. You know, the use of emotes, the way people can communicate with one another. Usually chat is used sparingly in Zoom sessions and classes. I told my students, use it liberally to talk about whatever you want in relation to what we're talking about, even to each other. And then I would read chat back to the students like they would do on Twitch. And, you know, I would use sound effects, you know, that like people on, on Twitch might use sound effects because I have a production board called a stream deck. I would pull those things in as well. I would try to shift the view more regularly than keeping a static one shot, you know, going back to your, you know, your training, you got to change the shot. You know, how long are you going to keep the camera on one shot before you're going to shift it? So taking some of those production approaches that I saw of good Twitch, you know, streamers, and then watching very carefully what people would do on news shows, and then breaking that down and figuring out how to bring it into my online class. Mm -hmm. And I like to think I did pretty well. The students, uh, you know, would, would responded very well to it. And I think that for me, at least, it, it pushed me to be more creative and innovative in how I was using the tools. Well, I think that um, online education has so much potential because, I, agree. I mean, when you think about it, there's a huge inefficiency. And let's just talk about higher education because it's the one where I think online theoretically has the most potential. It's yeah. a little hard to imagine that it would be a good idea in the future for kindergarten to all be online. You know what I mean? Because there's so right. much like a behavioral component. Right. But by the time you get to higher education, it's mostly, you know, about learning and, you know, academic stuff. And um, it seems to me that... Um, you know, there's a huge inefficiency in higher education. And this might be a terrible thing to say to someone who's a professor, no, no. but because you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people teaching sociology 101 at schools across the country, probably covering pretty much the same material. And frankly, if it could be done via Zoom, I mean, my wife, who is in addition to being a psychologist, is until the end of this year on, on the faculty at a university as well, teaching in the PhD psychology program. She had one of her colleagues videotape all his Zoom, Zoom classes from the first semester under COVID. And then the second semester, he, he just played them back, right? Like right. he just used the old lectures. Why do it again, right? And so when you think th theoretically about that, like, well, why, have, why not have the very best teacher of sociology and everyone just watch their videos? You know, why even have that? Um, and then, you know, have some way of, of permitting questions and somebody who can moderate and ask questions. But if it really worked well to do right. it online, one could imagine increasing the quality, lowering the cost, improving the efficiency, and all these types of things. Um, but yet, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have worked for most classrooms. So I, I think, think more I, figuring needs to be done. Well, I think you know is the goal right. When this goes back to what's our goal? What what's the thing we're trying to do? Is it to disseminate information or create knowledge? Now, disseminating information, having one person record something on YouTube and then put it out there, yeah. That's a very effective way of disseminating information. If the idea is to create knowledge, which is done more in the moment, in, in you know, collaboration with others, it becomes a bit more challenging. And one of the things that, you know, you talk about design thinking, one of the things I've tried to do more in my classes is use participatory design to even create the syllabus, right? To say, what is it that you care about? What topics around, you know, if it's a class on criminal justice, what topics in criminal justice are most interesting to you? 
What things do you like to learn from? What do you like to watch? What do you like to read? What do you want to get out of this class? And based on that response. And were you able to do that that successfully? Did that work well? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's It's interesting. It's a work in progress, but I, you know, it's a risk. It's, you know, imperfect, but then it also shows for, for them that I'm willing to take risks and be creative. And I hope they'll do the same. Yeah. I get this impression and this is via my wife, but you know, that this, this, this generation of kids that are of college age and, yeah. and I have my own kids, right, and right. I don't know what I'm about to say is true for them. So this may be an unfair generalization, but from pressure I get from my wife is like, there's a strong sense of entitlement and more that they're the customer. Right. And so, you know, I know in her experience, if her syllabus wasn't turned in by two weeks before classes start, she'd be in huge trouble. And then if during the course of the semester, she had, wants to deviate from the syllabus, she's going to have half this class like up in arms. How dare you? This is the syllabus, you know? And so uh, I think it'd be very difficult for her at her school. And maybe the culture is different to do what you're describing because of this sense of, well, this is what you promised me and how dare you change it. Well, I'm also a full, full professor with tenure. So I'm like, you know, what are you going to do? Fire me? <laughs> so so you're like, there, tough luck. There is that. But, but also, how are your rate my professor reviews? Mm. Well, I know, right? And so <laughs> and actually, you know, when talking with- the And your hotness about, rating. They took that away, by the way. That oh, was very they? disappointing. They took away the, the chili pepper because that's all I had going for me. Ah. Like, I'm like, why are you not prepared for class, thing? but five chili peppers? Yeah, I got the chili pepper. So there's this idea of the students, you know, I think that in when I've shifted and changed, I've talked with them about it. So here's where we're at right now. We have a few different options. One option is we can stay with the syllabus and go this way. We can, given this new thing that, you know, Supreme Court decision or George Floyd or whatever, we can pivot and go into this direction. We can do, you know, here are the options. What do you want to do? And so it's this idea of giving up control. I don't know, right? Giving up control to the customer, quote unquote. And, you know, yeah, the students can be entitled, but they're also students. And the idea is that they also are looking for direction and they're looking for permission to be creative because so much of their educational career, and this is where I think some of that anxiety comes from, is performative. Here's the task. I'll evaluate you to this nearly prescribed task with a specific rubric. And if you don't measure up to that rubric, then you fail versus this ambiguity space. And we're private business school. The best preparation for business is comfort with ambiguity. (laughs) You Mm. know, we, you know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you know, let's, develop the skills and the, and the competencies to, you know, figure it out and manage. Yeah. Yeah. And my wife's training psychologists. So similarly comfort with ambiguity, probably helpful. (laughs) And my wife's a social worker with a mental health practice. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. And by the way, one of the things that, you know, we talk about expectations when I was doing the call centers, I went to my wife and I said, how do you deal with clients who have a skewed sense of reality, but you don't want to dismiss them, but you don't want to validate it at the same time and tell them they're right. Thinking about customers, it's just like, oh, well, these are the techniques we use. So I then took those techniques and then <laughs> put them into the call center training. Again, it's this idea of like, who are the, who, who's good at this? And let's figure out how they do it. There's a really wonderful book, by the way, you might, you might be interested in reading. It's called um, Verbal Judo. It was written by a former English professor who became a cop. He's now deceased, but he goes into how to verbally diffuse situations by redirecting and, you know, um, approaching different, you know, difficult people in different kinds of ways. 
you know, and so it's like this idea. Of, I'll check it out. Yeah, it, it, you, you might you might you might like it because it's one of those things. And then also talking with the experts, with the call center workers, say, how do you do that? How do you manage that? So you know, I, I, I one of the things I think about your book, which is, and I I could tell that you wrote it as a person who has taught students before, because, and I I mean this as a, as a compliment, it reads very much like with the icons and the graphics, and the clear instructions and the exercises. This is how you can do this thing. Right. Well, yeah, we really wanted it to be a practical guide to teams that were going to get this stuff done. So I'm glad you feel that way. Thank you. Yeah, and the, and and you know that even though it might seem like a like a big ask to transform or you know manage or win customers in a transformative environment or constantly change an environment, there are there are methodologies, research methodologies, and philosophical methodologies around customer experience that can help guide you towards being successful? Well, there's no doubt. There's a lot of, there's never only one path to success, I believe, but there's definitely a lot of paths that don't lead to success <laughs> or things right. that massively increase or decrease your livelihood. So that's what I try to do is to really just take what I've learned from really 25 years, scary to say, of working with large brands on digital transformation, successful and unsuccessful, and say, when, when, they, when, when, when companies have been successful, what did they do? What, what caused that success? And right. I think because I've observed so many, I've been able to see what some of those patterns are. And so that's what I've tried to document in the book. And uh, hopefully companies can use it to avoid making some of the same mistakes that I've made or mistakes that I've observed companies making. Sometimes I get brought late in the game and I'm like, what happened here? We've been working on digital transformation for three years and we've gotten nowhere. <laughs> really? That's a long time. Well, what, what were you doing? What did you do? And you learn, you're like, oh yeah, I can see why, you know. That'll do it. So I, I, I got an advanced copy, but is the book out now available for purchase? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The book is out. It uh, came out in January. Uh, and okay. uh, we got on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. When it came it really? out, so we're excited about that. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. So you can get it on Amazon or, you know, Apple Books and Kindle and Bar Barnes & Noble Look and all, all the usual places you'd find a book. Uh, and if you're interested, if anyone's interested in uh, reading the first chapter for free, you can get that on my website at winningdigitalcustomers.com. And we'll have all of that in our show notes at experiencexdesign.com. And anything we left out, anything that we covered a lot, we went for. No, your, this was a fascinating uh, set of topics. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what makes Twitch interesting. But <laughs> uh, well, that's a I'm happy to chat with you about that because I think I understand. We do a whole hour on Twitch. <laughs> yeah, because a whole, I have a whole thing about Twitch that we can talk about. But yeah, I think maybe that's the next time you're on the podcast. All right, great. Well, this has been fantastic. Really enjoyed it. We want to thank Howard Tiersky for joining us again today to talk about his new book, Winning Digital Customers. Now, you can find his book wherever you buy books and make sure to support your local bookstore. We'll have the link to his website, his book, and all the other digital information you can check out in the show notes below. Of course, as always, we'd love to know your thoughts. How can we design experiences more intentionally? How can we think more realistic about what our digital capabilities are, what our customers want, and how do we meet and then exceed those expectations? Do you think about digital and curiosity and different pieces, social media aspects, websites, visuals, any of these parts as part of your own digital experience design? If so, we'd love to hear about it and have a longer conversation. So shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. Also, we always, as always, want to thank you for supporting the podcast. As of this recording right now, we are at 4,699 downloads. Now, that doesn't include all the listeners, just the downloads. And there's something about that 699 number that I can't wait for it to tip over to 
4,700. Indeed. So once again, thanks for all your support and patronage. We appreciate your contributions and listening, sharing your ideas, sharing your thoughts, as well as when you are able to do so, your financial support in making this podcast possible. We have a lot of ways you can help us out. You can support our podcast through Buy Me A Coffee, as well as other means, which can be found at our website, experiencexdesign.com. And as Adam said, you can always share your feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign. If you want to subscribe, head over to our webpage, put in your email, Stay up to date on all the EXD happenings, and you can find us as well on LinkedIn. All of the digital transformation platforms are available to experience, experience by design. So with that, stay healthy, stay well, get vaccinated, wear a mask. As my mom said, wash your hands, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design. Yeah.